<clears throat> Welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a show about how space technology is transforming our world, with your host, Coleman Lutz. First up, we have 60 seconds in space. And go! Astronomers detected the biggest explosion since the Big Bang from a black hole that's 390 million light years away, which has left a giant dent in thousands of galaxies, and we still have no clue why. Secondly, the Chilean-based ALMA Observatory found an abundance of organic compounds known as acrylonitrile on Titan, which is Saturn's moon. They found enough to support millions of single-celled life forms. And lastly, JAXA's spacecraft slammed a 2-kilogram copper ball into the 900-meter-wide asteroid at 4,500 miles per hour. This formed a 7-meter-wide impact crater. I was wondering, imagine uh, what the significance this could have on asteroid mining. So today, we shall be hearing from Anthony Baker, who's the founder and CEO at Satellite View an Earth observation company planning to launch a small constellation of infrared imaging satellites. Anthony has over 20 years of experience in working at innovative satellite companies spanning from Qatar, Luxembourg, Hong Kong, Netherlands, and London. Buongiorno, Anthony. It is our pleasure to share a conversation with you today. How are things over there in London? They're great. Thanks, Cole. So they invited me for this conversation. Uh, things are good. Things are looking optimistic despite the COVID virus. That's, it's great to hear uh, things are on the uprise. Wonderful to see your uh, pitch and presentation at Satellite 2020. Ah, thank you. So uh, yeah, we had a good turnout, um, had a lot of uh, interest from investors and customers and people who want to do good for the planet. So that was uh, very complimentary. Amazing. So please um, enlighten us. What is your mission over there at Satellite View? Yes. So here at Satellite View, we're going to uh, launch a small constellation of infrared satellites that can detect the heat emissions from every building on the planet. Um, this is valuable to our customers if they wish to look at waste energy coming from buildings or economic activity we can tell if a building occupied or not if a factory going or not so this has both environmental uses and uh, uh, uses for commerce that's amazing yeah i remember seeing in one of your um, slides that buildings consume 40 percent of all of our energy use uh, here on our planet yeah, that's right. So it's, that number is comes from the International Energy Authority. Um, it includes both uh, the direct emissions from buildings, um, but also uh, during the construction. So the big energy consumers in construction are the uh, the concrete and cement, um, and then you know the steel uh, as well. So even new builds have uh, a, quite a large footprint. And we can monitor the efficiency of both the production of those raw materials and also once the building is operated to make sure that it's meeting the standards that uh, was intended. 
what was that period of time where you dedicated a significant portion of your life towards towards satellite youth? Well, I've been in the satellite industry for for over twenty years, and uh, mainly in the satellite communications. And my last role, I was the first CEO at uh, SLSAT, which is uh, based in Qatar, and there we set up uh, uh, the, the the company. When I entered the room, there was empty office, and when I left. There were 88 people, two satellites uh, procured, and uh, a valuation probably in excess of a billion dollars. So it was a big success. Towards the end of my time there, I was looking at uh, new opportunities, uh, more in a strategy role. And one of the things we thought about was, what else can, should we be uh, independent in? What other independent skills should we have? We'd had the communication ones and the broadcast satellite. So we started looking at Earth observation so we could keep an eye on, on the borders, on the sea around us, and, uh, and uh, look at pollution, or particularly oil pollution in that area. So we thought, right, let's, let's just design a satellite system, or you know, what, what do you need now? But at the same time, the, there was an economic um, upset and the oil price had dropped. So all projects were on hold. So I said, right, if it's not going to happen here, I'm going back to London and I'm going to start this company and do some good and earn some money and do some, you know, we would be sustainable as well as the work that we're doing would help for sustainability of the planet. Wow. It uh, sounds like quite a journey and, and we're grateful uh, that you're on such a journey. And so you founded Satellite You in... Um, Early 2016, I see. That's right, yeah. So in, in the early days, we were looking at what was unique in, in uh, the satellite Earth observation. But one thing that, that was apparent was typically Earth observation satellites pass only in the morning, sort of 10, 9, 10, 1030 in the morning. And that was traditionally the case because the air in the morning is a bit clearer and the shadows were good for detecting uh, good, good contrast. So you could get some height information out of it with the good. So we needed to find new technology which could work with one satellite and scale up. And the bit that was missing was twofold. One was ob observation in the night and, you know, particularly late evening or early morning when there is lots of relevant economic activity. And secondly, we were combined with optical and radar to the outside of buildings. Buildings look like a black box. What's going on inside? So if you have infrared, you can look at the energy that's being used. You get an indication of whether things are busy inside or whether they're dead inside. And so finding this right wavelength, finding the right revisit and finding the right resolution that we could look at building level was key to key to our success. Incredible! It definitely sounds like you guys um, are um, aiming towards a, uh, a large information gap here for our Earth observation community. Um, good question. So, if I'm about to take a shower, could you could you potentially see me um, taking a shower in my house? No, that's a great question. So, no, I think we've chosen a resolution which is good for buildings. And, and, you know, that's actually quite a challenge 
for uh, for infrared uh, imagery or in itself. Um, maybe one day someone can look at you taking a shower outside in optical, but certainly not from infrared. Um, so it's it's a new data set. It is good, much much better than existing data sets because you'd have to go to the science agencies, the space agencies to get similar data and they're looking at like 500 meter resolution, looking at clouds and forests and things like that. But only we're looking at three meter, but it's not gonna invade your privacy. Cool. Um, and so you're imaging in mid infrared and you can see through uh, clouds, but maybe not really thick clouds. So typically infrared is used to look at the temperature of clouds. So you're actually quite often used for spotting clouds rather than uh, uh, anything else. So clouds, certainly thick clouds will be an issue. Smoke's not an issue because the particles are a lot larger. So we'll be able to look at forest fires and things much more precisely than with uh, visible imagery. That's great. And you can see in total darkness as well through um, rain and snow, but the distance might be affected from um, absorption in the atmosphere. Is that correct? Yeah, it's good for detecting water. So if it is raining, then yeah, that will be a, you would detect the rain before you see the feature under beneath the rain. So yeah, it's, but it's good for looking at, so we've got some research going on with one of the universities uh, looking at what they call evapotranspiration. So this is the, the, uh, the, the water coming out of plants. And from, if you can measure that, then you can measure the underlying health of a plant. So you can work out whether it needs to be watered or not. And more importantly, you can tell how dry it is and whether it's going to burst into flames soon. So it's on the, on the forest fires and the wildfires front, there's some useful information that you can derive from uh, yeah, mid-wave infrared. And so you guys are somewhat increasing the spatial resolution by one or, or sometimes even two orders of magnitude? So certainly from the existing scientific instruments uh, at this mid-wave mid infrared, there's some long-wave infrared, which is really looking at thermal aspects uh, and certainly narrow band, uh, which could be available. Some people are looking at very narrow band, which is looking for methane, so gas leaks from pipelines. So they, they can be down to, you know, the tens of meters and, and maybe better. And... Um... You know, so part of the reason why I wanted to share this conversation together um, is because I believe what uh, you and your team are doing is is really needed in our um, with Earth observation and um, could provide a myriad of benefits with um, a lot of untapped potential. I was wondering what applications or additional applications do you most look forward to? We're trying to keep a balance between those applications that. Uh clearly will make money because as a company we need to be sustainable and those those applications which are you know data for good so we can make a, a difference to the planet so with and every application we try to find this uh, dual use between uh, commercial and environmental so we've been asked and we're studying with uh, one of the universities here in the UK to look at plastic in the ocean 
can we help protect the plastic in the ocean, find out where it's coming from, where it's going to? And so we've been asked to look at, uh, at that. And we think we can. We think we can make a difference on, on floating objects particularly. But the commercial application of that is we can also detect plastic boats and wooden boats, which might be used for illegal fishing or for uh, smuggling immigrants across borders. And everything we look at seems to have uh, this dual use as well. So we're looking at flares from, from oil refineries. The flaring indicates whether a fracking site is happening, is pumping or not. Um, and so there's activity going on there. And there's 600,000 of these in the US. So it's quite difficult to monitor them from the ground or, or from a single drone. But our satellite can cover all the areas and see the economic activity. The other thing about fracking is it's highly regulated. Um, and the flaring is highly regulated because it's very wasting of energy and it's polluting. So we can help the regulators and the companies who are subject to this regulation make sure that the rules are, are adhered to. Love to see the mission you guys are on over there. And it's interesting you mentioned um, ocean plastic cleanup um, application. I was recently watching a, um, a documentary called Shark Water Extinction, which I would recommend. Um, it was about the shark fin trade and I was incredibly surprised to hear that this shark fin market is a multi-billion dollar industry. And while I was watching, I was thinking um, about your infrared satellites um, and how they could potentially be um, one of the most influential technologies in identifying and predicting shark fin catching and storage. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of people looking at illegal fishing and, you know, uh, in, in many respects, and stop overfishing and, and dumping oil in the water. Um, so I think our data set is unique in some areas, but it's also very complementary for others. So people are looking at optical and radar, but, you know, our, our sensor fills in a gap where optical and radar is not always uh, very useful, um, certainly for small ships, plastic ships, uh, anything low profile uh, can, can help out. So we're working as a, you know, Earth Observation guys, it's a small industry, you all know each other. We're working to try and make some good out of this. And I think the combination of these sensors will address things like uh, uh, shark fin fishing and, and, and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I'm very optimistic we can make a difference. I think there's a lot of uh, potential in, in using this, this hot data in in conjunction with with SAR and uh, radar data, I think they could um, radar data could somewhat help you triangulate where to image in some cases. Um, I was also wondering, um, would your spatial resolution of three and a half meters be sufficient enough to monitor um, vehicular emissions? So it's sort of on the border where we have seen. Uh, detection of vehicles is people already count vehicles outside a Walmart to see uh, as a proxy for activity inside. So they can tell if Walmart's very busy or it's not, and they can sort of try and predict sales of that. And there's a couple of analytics companies already looking at that. With our data set, we can tell you whether a car's 
recently been moved in the last half an hour or so because the engine block's still hot. Um, and so that's a, that's a, a new dimension. But the actual emissions, um, I think it's more the engine block, which is a sizable uh, energy source, which would saturate a pixel rather than the exhaust itself. There are, as, as I say, other sensors. There's one that there's a couple of looking at greenhouse gases. So they're looking for methane and, and carbon dioxide. Um, there's one called Greenhouse Gas Sat from Canada. Um, and, the, you know, I think their information is looking at the leakage of methane or the consumption um, and the burning. So there's some complementary data set because ours is more the consumption of energy and the emissions are in factories and things like that. So we, we would see there's some overlap, but there's also some a lot of complementary information there. Do you see a use case in um, livestock agriculture as well and, and wildlife tracking? Possibly. I mean, an elephant's big enough, but the small small game would be would be difficult to uh, to track. So what we were asked by one of the universities here was they were trying to get the poachers um, of uh, elephants. And we said we couldn't track the elephant so easily, but maybe we could track the, the campfires, uh, which the poachers would use at night or, or whatever. We could track their camps um, because a fire would, especially in a, whether it's in the middle of the desert, bad guys in the middle of the desert, or whether it's uh, poachers in, in a savannah, uh, will stick out. And in lieu of uh, everything going on, I was wondering, how, how could your satellites potentially help us through this COVID-19 situation? So that was, that's an interesting one. So I think from a health point of view, I'm not sure how much it could help. But from an economic point of view, I think it can have a stabilizing influence. So whether companies are, uh, are operating, whether supply lines are operating, so there's all sorts of speculation and you know, people's livelihoods are at risk of this. If we could tell you which factories in China are working and which ones are not, people could plan things or, you know, and, 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 the, and the, uh, the economic and the market uh, volatility that's occurring now could perhaps be normalized with some reference data. So I, I, that, that was the part that I thought we could help out in this uh, COVID-19 situation. I, I do believe uh, whatever data sets can benefit humanity in, in these kind of situations is um, truly appreciated. I was also wondering what your current uh, active imaging time window um, or, or percent is on orbit for each satellite. Right. So you're getting more towards the confidential information now, but yeah. you know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> this is fine. I, I like uh, challenging questions. The questions you, I, I, I saw some of your other um, podcasts and you, you clearly have a good understanding of this. And you, you know that power on the satellite, however big they are, and our satellites are, are quite large. They're, they're not shoebox size, they're sort of one meter cube size and, uh, we try and get the biggest telescope we can in there, and uh, and uh, it's covered in solar rays. But 
Nevertheless, you are power limited. To collect the data, to operate the camera, to transmit it down to work is, is always the limitation. We, we can collect actually videos uh, and stills um, to, of, of the earth. And we can't run the video camera all the time, um, but we can run it for uh, at least, you know, on one minute intervals. So we get one minute videos of the earth. And videos are very good because uh, they show movement very easily. So, you know, untrained eye, you and I could look at a video and go, look, there's a car driving across the screen. Completely understand. Uh, thanks for your honesty. Uh, and so you guys anticipate at your full operational capability um, to have around seven satellites in your constellation? Yeah, so we, we chose a a scalable approach this time based on sort of lessons learned. Rather than having to launch the whole constellation before we could provide a, provide a product, we're going to launch one satellite in uh, what they call sun-synchronous orbit. So it goes over the, over the Earth at the same time every day. And then we will launch uh, another six satellites into inclined orbit, which means uh, you tend to get a faster revisit rate than you would with a sun synchronous. But it depends on, on the demand um, and how the, how the system evolves. Yeah, I think what you guys are doing is uh, really important to help resolve climate change and global warming. So one French study said that 7% of buildings cause 90% of uh, emissions. Um, so if we can go and find those 7 of buildings and make them slightly better or fix them, then clearly getting to carbon neutrality as a planet is going to be a lot easier. And case in point, there's um, if, you, if you look at uh, particularly countries where it's warm and there's lots of air conditioning, if you have a bad building, a bad insulated building, it tends to kick out a lot more heat. The air conditioning has to run a bit harder. And it actually heats the local environment, the local block up. Uh, significantly, such that now the outside temperature is warmer, the echo has to work even harder to keep the inside cooler. So you get this sort of runaway effect, and they call them urban heat islands, where bad buildings heat up uh, uh, the urban uh, environment. In fact, in London, there's an app uh, by King's College London that identifies the pollution on each street. And they have a, ver a variant of the app which says, if you're walking or cycling from A to B, you shouldn't take the quickest route. You should take this route to avoid this pollution. Well, with our data, we can tell you why you're having to walk that extra mile. It's because of this building, this building, and this building is causing you to walk this extra mile. So we think it'll have not only an economic benefit, but a, you know, a social benefit that people will be able to understand why there's higher pollution in their neighborhood than just down the road. I love to hear this because um, I'm very much passionate about our air quality. And um, if there are any listeners interested in potentially investing, what would you uh, like to share with them? So, yes, we are going through a seed round at the moment. Um, so we're, we're, we're open to angel fundings, but we're particularly looking at VCs as well. Um, but we're looking for about $2.6 million um, for our first round. And this will enable us to put our camera on aeroplanes 
and to get early sample data. So a lot of our customers want early data to see uh, you know, what sort of things they can uh, see, what new insights they can get from our data. We're, we were hoping to close in, in April, but I think it might be delayed a month or so because of the COVID uh, discussions. But uh, we're certainly open to opportunities. You can find me on LinkedIn or you can go to our website. There's a connection there if you, if you want more information. And we have a, a pitch, prospectus, business plan. We have all the due diligence material that anyone would ever want to see <laughs> to find out how wonderful we are and what great value we are as well. Amazing. I'm wishing you all the very best. Um, and uh, two more questions here. I'm wondering what uh, is your anticipated lifespan for satellite? And do you guys anticipate to use in space refueling? Um, interesting. So, yeah, we're, we're looking at uh, the, what other new space things we could, we could uh, you know, use for our system. But yeah, so typically we're, we're designing for five years, um, but we've known this technology. We're using the existing satellite bus that's been flown before. It's, it's lived for you know seven years and beyond. I think if we had the opportunity to put more fuel on, we would run the satellite closer to the Earth so we'd get a higher resolution. But then the atmospheric drag would shorten our five-year lifetime to maybe three years or less. So having a refueling capability could allow us to get some of that lifetime back. So there's definitely an opportunity there. Excellent. Very glad to have you on here today and uh, love to see everything you guys are doing and however we can help. Uh, we'll be there. Great. Thanks, Cole. It was a really good interview. I really appreciate the questions and this opportunity to explain to you and the viewers, uh, you know, what's going on in Satellite View. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Bye for now.